You're listening to the Enhance Your Practice podcast series, brought to you by ASPS University. I'm ASPS University Chair, Dr. Nicholas Panetta, and I invite you to check out all of our educational offerings, from professional surgical videos, courses on practice management, and much, much more at ASPS EdNet. Hello, listener. Welcome to the ASPS University podcast, Enhance Your Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Ash Patel. This episode is titled Working with Nurse Practitioners and Physician Assistants. And we're fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Carmen Cavalli. Dr. Cavalli is in solo private practice in Atlanta, Georgia. She's been there in practice since 2002. Welcome, Carmen. Thanks for joining us uh, for this recording. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I think we've got a really good topic here and, and your practice in particular can, can probably give us some good insights into this. And of course, many, many of our member surgeons around the country work with nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And obviously there's different training backgrounds and different ways that we can harness nurse practitioners and PAs within our practices. So first of all, can you touch on what the differences in training and education are, obviously between someone who's a board-certified plastic surgeon, but also differences between nurse practitioners and, and PAs. Certainly. So I think most of the listeners uh, might be board-certified plastic surgeons, and so we're familiar with our own training. But for anyone who's not also a plastic surgeon, anyone who's a plastic surgeon has completed uh, four years of undergraduate studies and four years of medical school. Occasionally, those will be combined into a six-year program. Uh, But the important piece is once medical school is completed, we then go on to do a minimum of six years of plastic surgery-specific residency training. And then we're able to uh, go out into practice or pursue additional subspecialty fellowships like craniofacial surgery uh, and so forth. A physician assistant is a master's level degree. They have roughly a 27-month program post-undergraduate studies. The the PA educational model is designed in the medical model. So their education is a a truncated version of medical school, um, hitting kind of the highlights of physiology and, and so forth. And when they finish, they're not required to do any sort of uh, subspecialty training or residency training, although they can certainly opt uh, to do so. There are several residency programs uh, that are, I believe, one year in duration for PAs. Um, They're not the same as a physician residency, but it is additional training that they can pursue if they choose to uh, in surgery and in emergency medicine. So it's a a 27-month graduate program, typically. And then they can join a practice or join a facility and do additional on-the-job training to learn the specialty that they're working within at that time. Nurse practitioners have the most varied types of training, and it's very hard to to summarize because they complete nurse practitioner education, and then they do take an examination. They can choose which board exam to take. They're, They're not required to take one or the other. But the educational model is not a medical model. It's a nursing model. It's very patient education focused. There are so many different pathways that it's difficult to explain. So for instance, a nurse practitioner traditionally would work as a registered nurse in a particular field, say labor and delivery, and then would choose to become a women's health nurse practitioner. So with a master's level degree, go back for additional training in that field and then return to that same area of practice as a nurse practitioner, 
uh, with, in most states, prescriptive authority. In the last 10 or 15 years, though, the educational model has changed drastically for nurse practitioners, and there are what's called direct entry programs where anyone with a non-nursing degree can directly enter, in some cases, an online educational program, and in less than two years come out with a nurse practitioner degree. So the training for nurse practitioners is highly variable. The clinical hours required is highly variable. Whereas with PAs, you know you're getting someone with at least 2,000 uh, clinical hours of experience that's usually hands-on. Nurse practitioner programs require, in some cases, as little as 500 clinical hours, and those can be shadowing hours. So I think it's very important with whatever physician extender, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a PA, you choose to include in your practice that you take it on yourself to really question the depth and breadth of that specific candidate's educational background, because it can be highly variable. With the educational background being so varied, what role can non-physician practitioners serve in a plastic surgery practice? Well, PA education is not highly variable. It's, it's more rigorous and standardized, more similar to medical education. So with a PA, I think it's very easy to say, I understand your training, I understand your educational background, and within my state, here's what you can do under my license. They do have their own licenses, but ultimately in many states, it's the physician who's ultimately liable for the actions of the PA or nurse practitioner working within their practice as the supervising or delegating physician. For a nurse practitioner, they have a similar scope of practice in my state. It's variable though, it depends on your state. In some states, nurse practitioners might be considered independent licensed individuals without need for a supervising physician. So if you're going to include uh, an NP in your practice, you need to understand what your state laws are regarding the level of supervision that's required, the level of delegations that, that is required. In my practice, I've had two PAs uh, historically, and they work beautifully side by side with me, have them trained by me to do injectables, to first assist in surgery. Uh, they do come out of their uh, PA training with surgical experience. Most nurse practitioners do not. Um, but that, of course, is something the surgeon can choose to teach. They do a lot of my uh, pre- and post-operative uh, education. They begin all consults, so they start the educational process with the patient, and then I go in after they present the patient to me and come up with the final surgical plan. They're, they're really kind of my right hand, and I, I value them very highly in my practice, and I've enjoyed working closely with my PAs. As you mentioned, regulations can vary between states. Do you have any advice uh, for our listeners on how they might find out about what their regulations are in their state? Certainly. There are several different resources that you can go to to find out the scope of practice laws for your state regarding PAs and nurse practitioners. You can start with your medical board website. PAs often fall under the purview of the medical board, so you would be able to find information about them at that site. For nurse practitioners, it would be under the nursing board in the vast majority of states. I don't believe there's any state in which they fall solely under the board of medicine. The um, American Association of Physician Assistants website would have information, as would the American Association of Nurse Practitioner website. They have the state scope of practice laws broken down. What would you say some of the benefits of working closely with the PAs in your, in your practice has been for you? 
they've really freed me up to see more patients. I'm able to see some of the more complex patients while they manage, you know, say my six-week post-op follow-ups who are doing well, um, they'll manage those patients. They'll help with injectables. So they've been able to help me grow my uh, non-surgical side of the practice. I also do injectables. Uh, I think it's important that whatever I delegate to a PA or a nurse practitioner has to be something that I am proficient at because I'm, I'm, I'm the final stop in the practice. So if something happens, you know, I need to know how to manage it. And so I don't think it's, I don't think I should be delegating anything that I can't manage myself, uh, but they've very much been my right hand. I love having my PA in the OR. I think anyone with a great first assist knows how great it is to have a, a consistent set of hands in the OR with you just make things go more smoothly and efficiently. So for our uh, listeners who may be still in residency or, or surgeons early in practice who haven't really worked with a non-physician provider in their team, can you explain a little bit more about what supervision actually means? Sure. In some states, there is a legal definition of what supervision or delegation entails. In some states, there's no supervising physician uh, designation. You're the delegating physician or you're the collaborating physician uh, in legal terms. So it depends on in your state how the relationship is defined. In my practice, I see all new patients. I think it's important that when a a patient chooses to come to a specialist in particular or has been referred by a primary physician to a specialist that they actually see that specialist. Even though if one of my PAs begins the consult, I always see the patient. You know, there's there's a reason that our education differences uh, are there and there's a reason that we have different roles within the practice. And I think it, it, we owe it to our patients to see them at the initial consult to make sure that the diagnosis given is the most accurate and that the surgical plan is um, the most realistic for the patient. In some states, supervision or delegation or collaboration actually requires the physician to review a certain percentage of charts. So for instance, uh, some of the injectable patients that I don't see at every visit that only my PAs have seen uh, in the state of Georgia, I would be required to review 10% of those charts each year and uh, sign off on them. That's pretty easy to do because I'm often in the office at the same time. So I say hi to the patients and go from there. In other states, the physician is required to be within a certain distance of the facility while the NP or the PA is working without the physician physically present. And in some other states, the physician may be required to be on site depending on what procedure has been delegated to the nurse practitioner or the PA. So it really, it's highly variable and it's very important that anyone employing a PA or NP understand very clearly what your state law requires of you so that you can make sure that you're not just doing what's best for the patient, but also what's within the the guidance of the law. Can you tell us a little bit about compensation models for the non-physician providers? So the most common compensation model is salary with possible production bonus. For instance, if you have your PA or NP working uh, with injectables, there might be a certain target that you set, and then there's a bonus paid as a percentage of of the target that's reached. There is rarely uh, additional compensation for call in a surgical subspecialty like plastic surgery. 
I think when an NP or a PA is hired, it's expected that call is part of that package. So in, in many cases, there's not additional compensation for taking call or for doing hospital rounds. It's just expected as part of the compensation. Surgery PAs and NPs are more highly compensated than those in primary care, probably because they have some longer hours in the OR and because of the hospital rounds. It, I think it's typical that PAs and NPs are included in the practices uh, 401k and uh, other benefits uh, programs like health insurance, but the standard is uh, salary uh, with or without a production bonus. One of the questions that, that I've heard come up at times is the worry that when you train a non-physician practitioner as part of your team, particularly in some states where they may be able to, to have uh, an element of independent practice, that they then want to leave and, and do things by themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about your view on that? That is absolutely true. And it even happens in states where there is um, not independent practice. I think if you're going to hire anyone within your practice as a clinician, that you need to consider uh, whether to add a solid non-compete clause to their contract. Definitely have an attorney look it over because um, they're <laughs> having learned from firsthand experience. Uh, if there's a loophole, they'll find it. Um, so it's important that you have a good attorney look over the uh, non-compete clause. Now, in some states, non-competes, uh, I understand, don't hold up very well. I think California, I've heard, is one of those. I'm in Georgia and non-compete clauses do hold up uh, in most cases if they are time limited and if they're geographically reasonable and if they're not overly restrictive on the practice of the contract signer. So for instance, with a PA, it would be unreasonable to restrict them from practicing in the field of plastic surgery overall. But if you've brought them into your practice and you've uh, trained them to do say injectables and they've built up a, a nice little following within your practice and they want to go across the street and set up shop doing injectables, a way to thwart that is to, from the start, set out a non-compete that specifically carves out, you know, you can't do non-surgical aesthetic rejuvenation procedures within a 10 mile radius for one year after you leave this practice for any reason and have an attorney check the language. But that, that's always a, a concern and a consideration. For any type of plastic surgery practice that, that perhaps doesn't have uh, already a, a non-physician practitioner, do you have any advice on how that practice might be able to determine if they really have a need to add a non-physician practitioner? I don't know any science behind this, but the way I looked at it was when I reached my own limit, when I had, you know, Monday through Friday just filled and I had no other capacity to fit another patient in for the foreseeable near future, I was at the point where I either had to decide if I was bringing on, you know, a partner or what help did I need? Did I want to grow the injectable side of my practice? Did I need more help with the educational part so that I could free up some time to maybe do more procedures? What did I, I need and who would best fill that role? And it turned out that I felt like a PA would best fill that role. And that has been the right decision for my practice for a number of years now. So I think just look at your own capacity, look at what you want to grow in the practice and look at where the gaps are. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the breadth of perhaps services that a non-physician practitioner can be involved in? So a PA in the state of Georgia is legally allowed to do anything under the license of the physician 
that the physician allows them to do. So PA can have as, as much or as little breadth as you'd like them to have within their practice. Like I said, they do first assist in surgery, but I'm finally responsible for the outcome of the surgery, of course. Uh, injectables, uh, laser devices, and laser laws can vary by state as well. So make sure if there's an additional license required for your PA or NP that you look into that if your state has a laser licensure board or requirement. Again, patient education is key. You know, I, I used to spend an hour doing a pre-op visit with my patients a couple of weeks before surgery. And now my PAs do that. I've done the consult, we've done the discussion, the education, and my PA gets to sit down and and go over the nitty gritty uh, instructions before and for after surgery and to get the prescriptions set. So prescriptive authority is something that nurse practitioners and PAs have in all 50 states. So they're able to handle refills. If I'm in surgery and my PA, my other PA is in the office, they can handle you know, the patient phone calls that come in with questions, concerns, uh, needing refills and such. I should say too that in my state, you know, I can have my PAs do uh, scar revisions. They can do dog ear corrections, remove small lesions. Those are all things that I've empowered them uh, to do within my practice. And I've been assured by my own observation that they're absolutely capable and the patients are confident in them to do things like that. The breadth of what a PA can do within your practice is solely dependent on what you're comfortable allowing them to do and what your patients understand them to be doing. Uh, I think it's important too. One thing we didn't touch on is uh, truth in advertising, uh, transparency. A patient should always, always, always understand who it is they're seeing and what those credentials are. I think it's really important. You know, I'm proud of my PAs and they're proud to be in the practice as well. And there's never a time that we would represent my PAs as anything other than physician assistants. And if I had a nurse practitioner, that would be the same. You're going to see so-and-so our nurse practitioner today. So it's always clear to the patient, the credentials of the person they're seeing, and they don't have to wonder whether that's the physician or not. I think that's a, that's a tremendously uh, important point. You know, especially when we we think about um, aesthetic surgery and aesthetic procedures, truth and advertising is is extremely important so that we can we can maintain the high quality and the the, the perception of what being a board certified plastic surgeon means. Absolutely. Uh, something that comes to mind actually when you you mentioned having your PAs uh, do smaller procedures for an insurance based uh, procedure. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences in how non-physician practitioners are able to bill? Full disclosure, I have not been in network with any insurance for about 13 years now. So <laughs> I'm speaking from my recollection from ages ago, but I do know that PAs can be reimbursed uh, by insurance as a first assist on procedures that allow reimbursement for first assist. Nurse practitioners in many cases cannot unless they are also credentialed as, a, as an RN first assist. I don't know if that's a statewide thing or if it's an insurance credentialing rule, but when I did take insurance, that was my recollection. And, and that was one of the things that led me, aside from the educational model, to choose PAs uh, was that I knew that they would be reimbursed 15% of the, uh, the surgeon's fee as the first assist. In the office, they can directly bill insurance for the procedures that they do. So it's tremendously important uh, for the listeners. Again, I want to reiterate that regulations and rules 
definitely vary state by state. And so tremendously important to familiarize yourself with what those rules and regulations are wherever your practice is. Carmen, do you have any other uh, advice or or resources uh, perhaps for our listeners? I think we've covered most of it. I don't know. I've, I've enjoyed very much having PAs as part of my practice and they're great for expanding my capacity in the practice and they're a great uh, collaborative teammate. Thank you for, for joining us for this episode. It's been, uh, it's been great having you. Thank you. I've appreciated being here. Thanks again. And a special thank you to all of our listeners. Be on the lookout for season eight of Enhance Your Practice we'll be discussing investing in your practice and yourself. Topics in this season include the journey to financial well-being, choosing the right real estate, measuring the ROI of new technologies in your office, and how to finance your private practice without a loan. Have you been racking your brain about how to staff your practice? Worry no longer. ASPS University has just released their latest course, the Staffing Toolkit. Learn all about the staffing life cycle, from recruitment to hiring, to training and management. With the course, you will receive a complimentary resource guide that includes sample job descriptions, hiring evaluation tools, checklists, and much more. Visit plasticsurgery.org forward slash staffing toolkit today for more information. Check out our other great practice management courses like late career planning and the essentials of coding on ASPS EdNet.